I'm Scott. Hello, I'm Julie. And this is A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Yes, indeed. And we today are talking about uh, the third book in uh, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. It's called That Hideous Strength. And this is episode 206, by the way. Um, Mm. And in, uh, let's see, it would be episode 204 and 202 is when we talked about the other two volumes. The first one is Out of the Silent Planet, and the second one is Paralandra. Indeed. Indeed. So this one, I had to push through. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. This was the longest of the three. And uh, the other two take place on different planets. One, mm-hmm. uh, the first one was on Mars, and the second one was on Venus. And this one uh, takes place on the Earth. Yes, we're, our Oyarsa is not very nice. Yes, we have an unpleasant Oyarsa. Mm-hmm. Dang it. Stupid, stupid Oyarsa. <laughs> I know, evil. Don't that's call right. him stupid, because that's just downgrading. Heck yeah, heck yeah. Oh my god. So, yeah, I did. I found this one more difficult. It was longer. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, again, I had to push through it. But there is so much here. Um, it, it's a book that I wish I had time to read again before talking about it. Mm. Um, because yeah. it's like, oh, you know, uh, now that I kind of see what's, what, what was happening, it would be nice to go back and pick up those details mm-hmm. um, and, and just read it again, kind of knowing how it all ended. Um yeah. You, read it, you had read it before now, right? I read it before, and I remember that with this one, I as with the other two, I had to get into it, and then I was really captivated. But this one, I don't remember how it was last time, but this time I was on page 120 before I finally went, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was slogging through the mud, man. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think it's because it might have been almost deliberately written that way. The you other think, two mm. weren't like that. They were much simpler. And these are, this book um, starts off with a married couple. They formed the two points of view that were shown in the story. And the guy, every time he, his things would mark, every time his stuff would come up, the everything, the conversation got really dense and obfuscating and he was i could empathize with the things he wanted and how he was being misled and everything but just reading what all the people were saying around him a lot of times was a huge chore and i realized that like i say that's probably deliberate but it was difficult for me yeah 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 i agree with you that it was probably deliberate um so we we have this in this book we have this two parallel stories well it's one story, but it's like two parallel journeys, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, one, so we have Mark and Jane, uh, who are a married couple, and their marriage is in trouble. <laughs> and uh, Mark goes one way, and Jane goes another way on this. Uh, so they're at a small college, and um, the college wants to sell a, a piece of this property. It's a forested little area. Um, and they want to sell it to this place called NICE, <laughs> N-I-C-E, the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. And um, Mark wants to be part of that thing. Um, he's thinking that that would be a wonderful thing to do, and Jane uh, does not, and they end up going two different directions. And uh, Mark ends up in a group, and Jane ends up in an opposite group, and uh, I guess you could say there are cosmic consequences to their decisions. Mm-hmm. And um, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and Jane actually isn't necessarily opposed to Nice or the mm-hmm. college he works in or anything. She is just, she just wants to be independent, an independent lady, mm-hmm. married lady. Okay. Not a lot of mm-hmm. things uh, controlling her or uh, pinning her in. And so that journey, which seems to be mostly comprised of reacting against stuff while feeling a vague pull towards, you know, the group she winds up with is 
is what motivates her. Whereas, like you say, Mark is Mark is actually he just wants to he wants to both progress his career and to be part of the in crowd wherever he is. Yeah. And so yeah, they're not. That, yeah, that's his main motivation, I would say, yeah. at, at the beginning is he wants to be in that inner ring or that inner the the group. Mm-hmm. He wants to be in the group of power. Right. Right. So, yeah, he wants to be accepted right. by the really important people. And so. Yeah. Both of them, even though they're married, we we almost I, we see them only have maybe one conversation now mm. that I can think of it before the end of the book. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, but they think about each other sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, and um, it's it's an interesting thing to show both their marriage, which I think is even more, uh, those ideas are just as entrenched now as they were when C.S. Lewis was writing about it. And then um, the the way that they are part of the groups that you're talking about that are diametrically opposed to what they want to accomplish. Hmm. One's evil and one's good, let's just say it. Capital E, capital G. <laughs> yes, indeed. Right. Yeah, yeah, without anybody really realizing it at first, especially. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's the way things happen. How could you get a more innocuous... Um, nice sounding group. Oh wait, the nice. <laughs> They're, they just want to make a better world through science, man. Come on, that's right. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, right. I don't so, know if that clarified anything, but yeah, no, that's that's good, and that's really the the plot of the book. Um, you know, and things kind of get more intense as time goes on, um, and you realize as a reader, you start to, well, and, and the characters, but Mark and Jane are both, um, experiencing things and realizing things and reacting to things in these groups. Um, right. and there, there just seems like there's a conflict that's going to come, you know, uh, at the end, that's the way it felt to me. Like there was, there was going to be a big battle, you know, <laughs> that's what it felt like it was leading up to mm-hmm. this big confrontation at the end. Um, which, you know, I guess kind of happened, um, but not, not quite how I would have predicted. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like um, in his Narnia books, the very mm. last, is, is it called The Last Battle? The mm. last book, there's a huge direct full-on war. And that is what you expect. Mm. Because Nice is pushing all that stuff everywhere they are. Yeah. You know, um, the t- they suddenly, they buy the land and they control the town. And suddenly their security guys are everywhere being extremely aggressive and um, they're tearing things up and the fog is so bad. No one can breathe anymore. I mean, they're just destructive and um, hostile. Mm -hmm. Whereas, um, yeah, the other group isn't even really very obvious. They're just a few people hanging out in a house. (laughs) Yeah. It's St. Anne's, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Was it a monastery or... I'm trying to remember what the building a, was. It was like a disused. Oh, I thought it was a country estate. Was I it? guess that's now guess it's it a country be. estate. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. But yeah, but it was, it was, it was interesting. So, um, you know, there's really no way to talk about it further. I don't think without, you know, getting into some detail because that is the general gist of it, mm-hmm. but it is very <laughs> spiritual. There is, uh, just like the other two books, and it, it is set in the same universe, obviously, as the other two books, which means, you know, the, the Ayarsa, uh, every planet has its own angel uh, mm-hmm. sort of in charge of it or or uh, under its purview. And uh, Maladil, who uh, was the, the incarnate, right? He was Jesus. Right, Jesus. Yeah. And uh, God, of course, these things are all real in the book. Right, and um, Ransom is a character who, he right. was the main character in the other two. He is not <clears throat> as main a character here, but he is yeah. definitely still very yeah, influential. I, I found him very interesting, Yeah, um, Ransom. And then... Really different. Um, just in some things that I was looking at, I, I so I may have missed it, um, but Lord Feverstone hmm. was divine, divine, right, yeah. from book one. They talked about that. They used the divine name some, and then mm. they went, well, he's Lord Feverstone now. Yeah. So they yeah. switched over to that partway through. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And he's can, helping can people out. Can I just do that? Can I just hands? pick a name like that and, 
you know, go into work today and say, you know, I would like you guys to call me Lord Feverstone. Oh, no, you have to have it done by con- by not Congress. Oh, by Congress. <laughs> no, it's, it's a, I think it's bestowed on uh, you somehow through a governmental okay, thing. Okay, so I need to find someone to bestow that. Yeah, you're right. going to have to go to England. I'm going to miss you. <laughs> well, surely they'll let me come back. Well, yeah, but I mean, while you're gone doing it, but maybe oh, okay. you could just do a lot of it on the internet okay. these days. Okay, that's good. That's good, because <laughs> I don't want to actually have to do anything for it other than that's, email. Well, that's, that fits in. Okay, good. We don't want to really do anything. Let's just talk about it. Exactly, exactly. Right, right, right. Because that would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) It would be nice. And that's one of the things Mm. that characterizes the whole nice group. Mark Mark is not one of these doers. He's not out accomplishing much. He likes to talk as much as the next person. But eventually he gets frustrated because nobody will even give him a direct assignment. Yeah. And isn't that interesting? It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, he he goes in there, he doesn't even know if he has a job or not. And and he's trying to decide, you know, so he works for this university or this small college, hard to call it a university. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, Nice comes in and he's like, well, I think I might go to work for Nice. And so he goes in there and he comes out of there and he doesn't know what the answer is. (laughs) But at the same time, he's like trying to deal with the small college who part of that group has said, uh, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that you've resigned your position. <laughs> and uh, can you recommend someone to replace you? you know, so he has to write a note back and says, you know, I, I never resigned. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was good stuff. Because that um, was done all by rumor. By, it was all by um, rumor, yeah. Feverstone going, oh, well, he told me that right. he was going to quit. And then, you know, Feverstone, you realize right then, you know, well, what's this guy doing? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. Um, but yeah, he's trying to get into this nice, you know, because there's a new thing they're coming in. He wants to be part of them. They're clearly powerful and he wants to be part of that. And he's, he has these conversations with the people there and, uh, just comes out without answers. And isn't that interesting? You know, that's kind of what, again, deliberate by, by Lewis, uh, that whole thing, Mark's entire thing is confusion there's uh, sort of a denial of reality going on yeah. there, um, but it's it's just you know you, you never know who who's in charge, even. No one ever says anything that you can really pin down. Right, right. And, but other um, people will talk about things as a people and go, "Oh, you really made this guy mad when you said this." And he's like, "But I didn't say anything." Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to know if I had a job. Well, if you don't know, then you're stupid. They say, you know, <laughs> right. so they. They continually mm. are sowing uncertainty and um, discomfort. Yeah, just, I would say, yeah, discomfort. Really they uncomfortable. Like, mm-hmm. Well, they won't ever deal in an absolute truth. Yeah, right. now that I think of it, mm-hmm. that's good. And that's yeah. yeah, and and of course, why would you? Because if what you're doing is trying to keep people confused, mm-hmm. and at the same time, that's it's funny because that's almost like a smokescreen. Yeah, but the verbal one, and then a and then, mental right. confusion that allows them to slide into the town. And start ripping it up. Yeah, that's great. You know, so you do have, you know, the, the physical fog and the mental fog. Yeah. Which is what they're doing. And then um, one of the conversations that Mark has, you know, when they finally start to get, you know, hey, here's something that we would like you to do. Because you'd be perfect for this. Mm-hmm. Is we want you to write news articles um, yeah. <clears throat> that are fake. <laughs> you know, uh, that before it um, happens yeah before thing before events happen he wants they want him to report on events before they've happened and he's not even a reporter you know so it's like they're they're just saying you know you're the kind of guy that would do this and <laughs> he has to decide am i the kind of guy that would do this um which you yeah. know is an interesting inner conversation too but they they would say things like okay well we're going to have a riot um on this day and then we need you to write the thing so that it can be in the paper in the morning and he says, well, shouldn't I wait till it happens? And they said, no, just go ahead. In fact, they laughed at him. Ha, 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 mm-hmm. Why would you wait? Just get yeah. that thing written. Get it in the paper. Um, and then we're going to have one uh, scheduled for, you know, this time and that time. And, um, yeah. and then he's like, really? My gosh. And he stays, right? And he's still there, you know, yeah. because there's this pull to be part of this group, this in-group it's um, superior to the others. They go around yeah. spending a lot of time being superior both to each other where they'll say things about other people around <clears> there or 
the masses in general, mm. and even the people who would support them, who probably do support them, who are, you know, they call them the educated people. Yeah. They're yeah. disdainful of them, although they're using them for their own purposes. So when he's writing the articles, he says, well, the readers aren't going to believe this. And they go, oh, well, the common man doesn't believe this stuff because they don't even bother reading it. But <sighs> the educated readers, <sighs> that was they really read something. it. They read yeah. these newspapers. And so the propaganda is aimed at them, and they're the ones who are influential, mm. who will make things happen. And I'm thinking of today going, huh, <laughs> who are the ones who get all the attention? It's, you know, the squeaky wheel who's ready to stand up there and be outrageous. And all the educated people go, well, I don't know. Let's talk about it. Let's think. Let's blah, 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 blah. Well, oh the regular goodness. people are going, what a bunch of idiots. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that is so very true. Where, you know, like, there's these ridiculous things that that are occurring and and – persisting right and mm -hmm. you know how is it that such a small number of people can influence you know public policy and uh you know it's amazing and it's been going on so long yeah oh yeah, yeah. here it is he says um i don't believe you can do that said mark not with the papers that are read by educated people that shows you're still in the nursery lovey said miss hardcastle who is a terrible woman, oh by the gosh. way. Oh, my gosh, yeah. She's so awful. Haven't you yet realized it's the other way around? And Mark says, how do you mean? And she says, mm. why, you fool. It's the educated reader who can be gold. All our difficulty comes with the others. When did you meet a workman who believes the papers? He takes it for granted they're all propaganda and skips the leading articles. He buys his paper for the football results and the little paragraphs about girls falling out of windows and corpses found in Mayfair flats. He's our problem. We have to recondition him. But the educated public, the people who read the highbrow weeklies, don't need reconditioning. They're all right already. They'll believe anything. That's one of the class you mentioned, said Mark with a smile. I just don't believe it. Good Lord, said the fairy, where are your eyes? Look at what the weeklies have got away with. And then she just mm. does this whole list of absurd things that, you know, within the last 10 years have come into being common knowledge and practice. Wow. Yeah. But were considered ridiculous when they were first mentioned. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you see that the educated reader can't stop reading the highbrow weeklies, whatever <laughs> they do? He yeah. can't. He's been conditioned. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so hmm. he has to think about himself that way. But then also there's some point where he's so intoxicated with being considered one of the inside group who's invited to this room, I think, at that point to have hmm. drinks with everyone, that it says he kind of – the criminal aspect of what he was they were talking about having him do kind of just slid by him. Yeah, yeah. They just – he wasn't paying any attention Right, you know. you know, and he he does say here, he says, well, this is all interesting, Miss Hardcastle, but it has nothing to do with me. In the first place, I don't want to become a journalist at all. Yeah. And if I did, I should like to be an honest journalist. So here, here he's got some integrity, right? Right. And then she says, very well, all you'll do is help to ruin this country and perhaps <laughs> a whole human race besides <laughs> dishing your own career, right? Which is what he really cares about. Exactly. And he's he not too like, worried about the human race. He's like, wait a minute, my my career? Wait a minute. But yeah. I have to have a job. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And then, you know, he just kind of just keeps going along, you know? And mm -hmm. uh, gosh, despite, you know, how, how odd everything is and, you know, how uncomfortable it is. And maybe that was why, again, you know, why it was so hard to read those sections with these folks. Mm -hmm. It's so odd and and uncomfortable. Um, it was weird. Yes, it was definitely weird. You know, and, and later it gets even weirder, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, here's the leader of our movement. <laughs> and it's In the real like, sense of the word weird, right, too. Yeah. 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 So he's looking at a severed head. That it was reanimated, that's, right? That's, yes, it's like a Frankenstein. Yeah, so it's like it's all running, you know, with with uh, uh, you know uh, lines and and you know electrical wires or whatever. And so I just picture, you know, and this head is just talking. It's like it's like a, a <laughs> visual of this cold, abstract thought just being severed from the human body, right? Where you're. You're like, right. you know, any kind of warmth that was there is just gone. This is just 
crystallized logical thinking, right? If, if only they hadn't chosen a, a big criminal to do it with. Right. It right. would have been great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it is. And it's, you know, their idea is to make man a more efficient animal. Hmm. And that this is the next step in evolution is these bodiless men. Yeah. And it made me think of transhumanism, Hmm. which is the idea that there is not, we're not done evolving, men aren't done evolving, and there's a next evolutionary step that can be helped along by, I don't know, nanobots, Hmm. um, personality pills, uploading your consciousness to a computer, yeah, gene you know, all kinds of things that science fiction explores <laughs> yeah. a lot of the time. Right. And he's talking about it here, essentially, already in 1940. Yeah, 1947, 1948. 1948. Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's you're right. That point that you're making about severing the intelligence from the body. Isn't that the thing that people like to do when they like to talk about the soul and the body as being different? Right, right. Because they're one thing. Mm-hmm. We're together. You can't, I mean, we're, it's a package. Yeah. And that's what always bugs me about transhumanism. Also, the idea, it sounds terrible. All those <laughs> ideas sound awful. I don't want to live forever like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Transferring your consciousness into a robot so that you can keep living. Mm-hmm. Yep. But, uh, but yeah, and it's, it's like a, a rejection of nature as well. Right. Um, and again, you know, trying to be the creator. Um, yeah, yeah, it's that idea that um, we're not very good as creators. We're, you know, we kind of have that creative impulse because we're in the, we have the Father Spirit in us, you know. Mm. But, but it's the idea that evil is terrible at it. Yeah. And that's the tearing up of the town to do whatever it is they're going to do. Right. And the taking mm. the head off this guy's body. And, you know, um, recently I was reading one of my Lenten readings that reminded me that Pope Francis, or no, different Pope, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in his Jesus of Nazareth Holy Week book, he talks about Jesus after the resurrection as being like the next evolutionary leap. Hmm. I don't know if you remember that part. I, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so essentially he's like, yeah, look at, look at what he does. He's still in his body, but people don't recognize him when they first see him. He's just that different. He can go through walls and locked doors. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, he can come alive from the dead. You know, let's start uh-huh. with number one. <laughs> but, yeah. but so all these different things. And he's like, it's this is essentially this is the step that man was supposed to have anyway, but it got interrupted by the sin. Yeah, and that's an idea from from that those previous books too, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. these continuing there. So, you know, there was that idea in Paralandra that you know, the plan that God had for us would have been better. Right. But it's like we're dealing with where we're at right now. Yes. <laughs> you know, kind of like, you know, making it as much good as possible. Yeah, and that yeah. is you're right. That is a real thread once we're once Jane is at St. Anne's and different people are talking about stuff going, well, yeah, but it would have been better if this hadn't happened, but it, it, this is happening instead. Yeah. God yeah. will use it. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, and, and, and Jane's character is really interesting too. So she's an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no agenda type atheist. She just doesn't believe and uh, starts to have, uh, sort of clairvoyant dreams, I guess you'd call them, where mm-hmm. prophetic, she, yeah, yeah, prophetic dreams. So she's dreaming things and uh, talking to people about them at St. Anne's, and um, you know they're they're helping her make sense of what's going on there. And then um, they she meets Ransom, and Ransom's interesting because he's changed, you know, so he. Mm-hmm. He was on Venus, you know, as regular person and stuff. And now he feels like he's younger. He's sort of, uh, I don't know, almost like glowing, kind of. I, I don't but know if you got that impression. He's, oh, yeah. They talk about it. Well, he's yeah. also um, still wounded, though. Yeah, and he is still wounded, right? Where that he was heel. bitten in the yeah. heel right. by yeah. 
And so he's also at the same time ailing. Yes. It's a, or just wounded, I suppose. It's just, right. It's yeah, a, he's just got this pain, right? Because he has to stay in his room all the time because of that. So, yeah, it's like a was bitten in, in the heel and then, mm-hmm. um, you know, later conquers. Well, and it's interesting because there's a big emphasis all through this book that I kind of remembered, but not to the point of when I was rereading it. Marriage mm. is really a key factor. So, the people who are at St. Anne's are, um, there's a married couple. There's one lady whose husband has been, she was the ha- former, I guess, house cleaner mm. for Jane, but her husband's in jail and he's, he, he was supposed to be let out. You know, he's like a petty thief or whatever. And, um, she's waiting for him. Jane is separated from her husband and it turns out Jane and her prophetic dreams are important to both sides. So the mm. evil side would like to have her too mm, and either sure. shut her down or use her for their own purposes. But the conversation a lot of the time turns around marriage. And so when Jane's talking about she'd like to come live at St. Anne's and they're kind of worried about it because the St. Anne's people are like, but your husband's on the other side. And she's like, so what? well, but you guys would talk about stuff. Would we? You know, mm. so they don't realize the level to which their estrangement exists. And then they, one of, one of the people uh, who's um, the couple that, the married couple that's there when they're first talking about her going to St. Anne's, their name is Deniston. And they mm. say, well, you know, you, you'd need to have your husband's permission. Mm. She's like, what does it have to do with him? <laughs> Well, said Deniston, hesitating a little, the head, or the authorities he obeys, have rather old-fashioned notions. He wouldn't like a married woman to come in. It would be, if it could be avoided, without her husband's, without consulting. Do you mean I'm to ask Mark's permission? Said Jane, with a strained little laugh. The resentment, which had been rising and ebbing, but rising each time a little more than it had ebbed for several minutes, had now overflowed. All this talk of promises and obedience to an unknown Mr. Fisher King had already repelled her. And Fisher King is what they're calling Ransom, who's also Mm. a kind of a mythical character. But the idea of this same person sending her back to get Mark's permission as if she were a child asking leave to go to a party was the climax. For the moment, for a moment, she looked on Mr. Deniston with real dislike. She saw him and Mark and the Fisher King man and this preposterous Indian faker simply as Men, capital M, complacent patriarchal figures making arrangements for women as if women were children or bartering them like cattle. She was very angry. Hmm. How interesting that is. You know, so we were talking about Mark, who can't seem to find an authority to give him an answer. Oh, interesting. And then Jane has an authority and she's rejecting it. She doesn't want it. That's very interesting. Yes. Because I, I think there is that there's this fundamental difference between those groups. You know, if you talk about individuality and things, I think that the people in Nice are sort of quelling that. You know, there there's there's this equality thing where um, it's kind of like everybody's the same. You mm-hmm. know, we were we're all the same. We're we're this collective. You know, but then in Jane's group, there's a family atmosphere to it. And and this this equality in the nice group is like you know everybody's equal, but they're equally insignificant, right? And Be- also they're pretending because they're not really equal. Right, right. Yeah, because yeah. because you really can't be. I mean, it, right. To me, you know that 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 equality thing is is odd. But the the right way to think about equality, I think, is in Jane's group where everybody's equally important. You know. They, they all have their roles. They all have important parts to play. Mm-hmm. But there is a hierarchy. And, it, yeah. and, you know, so everybody's equally important. Yeah. Um, but it's, a, like I said, like a family atmosphere to it. And, and Mark is the opposite of that. It's a very cold, confusing, lonely place at nice. But with uh, St. Anne's, it's the opposite for Jane. It's a... It's an accepting, um, you know, place that just feels family, fam- like a family to me anyway. 
and they're willing to put up with differences in personality that are not very um, pleasant sometimes, like Mr. McPhee, mm-hmm. who's so funny because he won't believe most of the stuff they're talking about. He's at St. Anne's. Yeah, yeah. He's like, well, you're going to have to prove that thing. I've never seen an Oyarsa. Yeah. I've never seen a. <laughs> but he's still on the side of truth and right and yeah, good. Right. He's still doing what needs to be done, but he's doing it kind of almost from a bluff, practical Oh, you people with your fancy ideas. I'm going to go out here and take care of this thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, one of them is a bear. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. He's not a talking bear, but he understands <laughs> enough. That's right. And um, Mr. So Burbage. Just, it's funny. So they, while having a hierarchy, are very inclusive. Right. And willing to let everybody be on their own path in terms of everybody doesn't have to be equal in development of their understanding of the concepts and everything. Right. Which, which you simply cannot be right. You know, right. I mean, you're never going to achieve that as a society or whatever. Right. And that is you like know? a family. You're right. There's always going to be, there's the older people, there's the babies, there's mm-hmm. all the people in between and everybody has their own role in supporting each other and loving each other and just keeping the family going. But there has to be a hierarchy. You know, when the chips are down, someone's got to make a decision. Mm-hmm. But you have to trust that they have everyone's best interest at heart. And I guess that's how you develop that trust is it's the everyday stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Because that's the showing of love. Right. Through action. Yeah. And, and Jane, Jane herself is, uh, uh, you know, an atheist, right? And, yeah. and she's amongst Christians, right? Especially Ransom, <laughs> you know? But then, yeah. you know, she grows an understanding, you know, from where you read, you know, to uh, a conversion. And that that's a particularly excellent uh, sub-chapter, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, a few uh, few paragraphs out in the garden. But that, that was powerful stuff. And um, Yeah, it's funny because he starts mixing in images from, from mythology in a yeah. lot of ways into this. And... It's kind of a development of what we saw in Paralandra, where really far into the earth, they were hauling around some like giant king on a sledge or mm-hmm. something. And he kind of had this moment of musing that maybe in a perfect world without sin, all those kind of pagan ideas also had their own place. Mm-hmm. And he That's, didn't really yeah. develop it further, but this is maybe that further development yeah, of it maybe, a little maybe bit. Maybe it is, yeah, because we haven't even talked about Merlin yet. Oh but, my gosh! Um, but yeah, yeah, so so this land that they that's nice wanted to buy, turns out is a legendary place where people believe that Merlin was buried, mm-hmm. and it turns out that that's true. And not <laughs> only was he, but the you know buried isn't quite the right word. He, it's like he was in suspended animation there, inside uh, of a cave. Inside of a cave, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, he wakes up. <laughs> Yeah. Does at this exact time, yeah, at the perfect time, mm-hmm. and it's so funny. As if there because... was a plan, but anyway, <laughs> oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, yeah, his, uh, but I loved his personality. Mm. He's very straightforward, but he's very much translated by C.S. Lewis as a man of his times when King Arthur would have been, yeah, yeah, and he's thrust into this modern world. Uh-huh. And so he understands very clearly good and evil, but in completely would I guess medieval is even too recent mm. for him, but in in whatever those terms are. And so he has this one point where he's talking about um he says, I give you great thanks. I cannot indeed understand the way you live, and your house is strange to me. You give me a bath such as the emperor himself might envy, but (laughs) no one attends me to it. Mm -hmm. A bed softer than sleep itself, but when I rise from it, I find I must put on my own clothes with my own hands as if I were a peasant. I lie in a room with windows of pure crystal so that you can see the sky as clearly when they are shut as when they are open, and there's not a wind enough within the room to blow out an unguarded taper, but I lie in it alone with no more honor than a prisoner in a dungeon. Mm. Your people eat dry and tasteless flesh, but it is off plates as smooth as ivory and as round as the sun. (laughs) And he keeps going on. He says, sir, I tell you these things because you have asked me. They're of no importance. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's like, but it's, he's just saying, you know, you asked me to live neither like a rich man nor a poor one, neither like a lord nor a hermit. Mm, yeah. And that's so funny because you think, oh, you should be so impressed and think our world's so amazing. Yeah. And it's not. Mm-hmm. It's what you're used to. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. And for him, the human people around are what's missing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I like, you know, right, right below that, he, he says, I could take all anguish from your heel as though I were wiping it out with a sponge. Give me but seven days. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. You know, and he's like, um, yeah, like you might find the country much changed. Uh, yeah, yeah, their interaction is just fun. It's really cool. But um, but he, he basically uh, says, you know, no, don't worry about my wound. You know? Yeah, he said that's that's mm-hmm. how it's supposed to be. He says yep. we have drugs that could do that. Mm-hmm. I don't need that anymore. Right. Yeah. Do you think you were dug out of earth to give me plaster for my heel? That's not what we're, we've got going on here. Yeah. We're <laughs> you know, we're busy with something. We're bigger. busy with something much much more important. Marlo's so, like, point me at it. Let's yeah, go. Yeah. Yeah, and he's a man of action, right? And he's yeah. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. Let's get her done. And actually, Merlin, who um, I totally want to come back to, but he brings up a point that I was thinking of when I was saying it's so much about marriage because he's mad at Jane and Mark. Hmm. He says, you know, she's from an ancient line and he's from an ancient line. And um, it was the purpose of God that she and her Lord should between them have begotten a child by whom the enemy should have been put out of Logris, which is Britain, Mm -hmm. for a thousand years. She is but lately married, said Ransom. The child may yet be born. Sir, said Merlin, be assured that the child will never be born, for the hour of its begetting is past. Mm. Of their own will they are barren. Hmm. He says, I did not know till now that the usages of Sulva were so common among you. I myself went, oh, I didn't know that was a thing back then. Mm. For a hundred generations... In two lines, the begetting of this child was prepared, and unless God should rip up the work of time, such seed and such an hour in such a land shall never be again. And then he says, you know, it would be the best thing if you just cut her head off. (laughs) You know, she can't really live with having let everybody down like this. Yeah. And it's this idea of, first of all, your marriage is not just about you and what you want from it, Mm -hmm. which Jane very vividly points out. And it's the idea, too, that... um, the two of you and your family fit into a certain plan. Mm. You're there to, you're born in this time in this place to do something. And just in the living of your lives, normally without you trying to control every single thing about it, that's part of the plan. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I remember pausing at that as well. Yeah. So it's just basically saying, Hey, again, there was this plan and you've thwarted the plan. Mm-hmm. Or she's thwarted the plan, so the plan's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You know, it, it is a different way of thinking about stuff, different from how we think about stuff today, for sure, where everything is, you know, well, what's best for me? We're very focused on the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of the American way. I mean, we're also very focused on community. Yeah, and and so there's I an mean, emergency. Yeah, so what is know? he saying about that? It's like, you know, with nice, if they're stripping away into individuality and they don't want it, um, that's anathema to their viewpoint. But then in uh, Jane's at Saint Anne's, you know, individuality is important, um, but yet this, you know, is and and what is that saying? I mean, it's saying that. Too much into you know individuality, or uh, it, we need a selfless individuality. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say first of all, Jane's given clear choices. They don't mince words. Mm-hmm. Obedience. The word obedience is used, and that's the word that just makes her fight the mo- more. Yeah. But she's told what they want from her, so that's her individuality is being honored. Mm-hmm. And. But she's just thinking of herself. You're right. She's. It's at the very, very, very end of the book when she and Mark have been brought to think of each other in the correct way, which is 
to love each other normally, mm. to be people around each other and not worry about what each one of them wants or be on tender hooks because the other one's so upset. Yeah. That's yeah. the culmination of the whole book. That's what's supposed to be. Yeah. And I, I know uh, it's a C.S. Lewis thing um, from, from elsewhere where I've read him that, uh, you know, Mary's choice to mm. say yes was a was of course a huge deal and but she had the free will to say no yes right and that I mean, was the, that's the important thing for lewis right mm-hmm. so you know, jane had the same type of christians thing. yeah right yeah we have we have the choice yeah it's it's there but we have the choice to say no to it mm-hmm. yeah which is the whole point of hell mm-hmm it wouldn't be there if people didn't want it. I mean, you know, it I think, sounds I, dumb. Yeah, I think it's possibly the whole point of this book, you know, is uh, temptation and uh, motivation and decision. You know, the the free will to decide, you know, that's what Mark is doing. That's what Jane's doing. Yeah, because nice is hellish. Mm-hmm. If it's not hell, a bit of hell, it's a portal to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, at one point he's held and tortured. Right, right, and she's tortured briefly too by yeah. that Mrs. Hardcastle person. Oh, that's right, I forgot that. Yeah, which was really sadistic and gross. Yes, for sure. Well, I mean, it was supposed to be, but ugh. Yeah. My goodness, this is the way that femininity mm. is manifested in hell, essentially. Mm. Yeah, or the feminine genius, or whatever it is, is what happens when it gets twisted. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, you know, I'm brought again back to that garden scene, you know, where Jane, you know, she's presented with all of this stuff. She's seen in Oyarsa, right? Mm-hmm. And then um she goes to the garden to think. <laughs> you know, and then mm-hmm. has a religious experience in the garden. And yeah. um, you know, some of the things she was saying there, uh, you know, all these preconceived ideas that were blocking her that you hear from other people, you know? So it's like, you know, in today's time, there are people that are not Catholic, for example, have a, a view of the Catholic church that right. is incorrect. A lot of them, right? They, 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 and they're getting it from media. They're getting mm-hmm. it from, you know, reading the headlines of articles <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe not even the article or, or whatever, <laughs> you know, like, like they True. were saying, right? So, um, but you know, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who, you know, like, for example, think Galileo was put to death. That's one, um, you know, and, and, or think, you know, something specific about the church today that they've read in, in a paper, you know, sometimes it's a little bit, you know, tragic too. Mm -hmm. Um, but then what she's saying here is, you know, hey, they're not talking about things the way that I thought they would talk about things. That's what Jane is saying. You know, um, she says, like, religion ought to mean a realm in which her haunting female fear of being treated as a thing, an object of barter and desire and possession, would be set permanently at rest. And what she called her true self would soar upwards and expand in some freer and purer world. Right? This is news to her. Right, mm-hmm. you know, for she still shot thought that religion was kind of an exhalation or a cloud of incense, something steaming up from specially gifted souls toward a receptive heaven. Then, quite sharply, it occurred to her that the director, the director's ransom, never mm-hmm. talked about religion, nor did the Dimbles nor Camilla. They talked about God. They had no <laughs> picture in their minds of some mist steaming upward rather of strong, skillful hands thrust down, to make and mend, perhaps even to destroy, supposing one were a thing, after all, a thing designed and invented by someone else, and valued for qualities quite different from one had decided to regard as one's true self. You know, Mm -hmm. just incredible. And then, um, you know, a little bit later, she's, you know, uh, it says, then at one particular corner of the gooseberry patch, the change came. What awaited her there was serious to the degree of sorrow and beyond. That's just beautiful. There was no form nor sound. 
the mold under the bushes, the moss on the path, the little and the little brick border were not visibly changed, but they were changed. A boundary had been crossed. She had come into a world or into a person or into the presence of a person. Something expectant, patient, inexorable met her with no veil or protection between. In the closest of that contact, she perceived at once that the director's words had been entirely misleading. This demand which now pressed upon her was not, even by analogy, like any other demand. It was the origin of all right demands and contained them. In its light, you could understand them, but from them, you could know nothing of it. There was nothing and never had been anything like this. And now there was nothing except this. Just awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know this is from his experience too. Mm-hmm. Right? This is mm-hmm. from Lewis's experience himself. It was making me think of the story of um, when he gets in the sidecar with his brother to go to the zoo one day. Oh, uh-huh. When he took off, he didn't believe in Jesus. And by the time he got there, he did. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, that's, yeah. that's how basic, you know, her turning the corner of the garden, him taking that ride. Right. Yeah. It's just beautiful. So she's, um, you know, and she's in that nurturing place, but... But that, that's part of it. You know, those preconceptions are being wiped aside, you know, slowly by, by reality. And then in direct contrast, Mark, Mark, I mean, almost at the same time, Mark is in a room with an old guy in a bed who wakes oh, yeah. up and says gibberish, right? Every now mm-hmm. and then he, he's in a, and I, I picture the room is stilted, you know, it's not even square, <laughs> You know, yeah. and, and whatever it is he's doing in the room, I forget what he's doing, but he's totally experiencing confusion, chaos, loneliness, um, just the opposite of what she's experiencing. I think he was put in that room to keep an eye on the guy because the, and this is kind of funny because the nice people pulled him out of a ditch thinking that he was Merlin. Yeah, right, right. And actually he's, uh, oh gosh, the cleaning lady's husband, <laughs> Ivy's right. husband. Yeah. But he's smart enough to know that he better pretend mm-hmm. to be whoever they want him to be. So he's speaking gibberish. Yeah. And um, that way he gets a good dinner, a warm <laughs> bed. And he becomes Mark's only real companion in there once once this gets figured out, which mm-hmm. takes a while. Yeah, yeah. And um, because they're the two normal ones really in the whole place. Right, Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Because that gives Mark time to think. Because they just want someone to keep an eye on this guy so he doesn't get out. I was trying to think. So, yeah, because Mark had his own kind of a bit of an epiphany, which was different. In a, I mean, he had several epiphanies also. Mm-hmm. But one of the ones that I liked the best was when he was, I guess this is when he was being tortured He'd be sent to this place to look at this art, and this art just sounds like the most twisted, worst, <laughs> awful stuff in the whole world. Yeah, and it would kind of start. He would fight it, but it would kind of change his soul. And by this time, he's like, "Oh no, I, I can't do this. These people are terrible." And he said, "But the effect it had was the opposite of what the people intended." Mm-hmm. It says, "At first, the, as the desert first teaches men to love water, or as absence first reveals affection, there rose up against this background of the sour and the crooked." some kind of vision of the sweet and the straight, something else, something he vaguely called the normal, apparently existed. He had never thought about it before, but there it was, solid, massive, with a shape of its own, almost like something you could touch or eat or fall in love with. It was all mixed up with Jane and fried eggs and soap and sunlight and the rooks cawing at Cura Hardy and the thought that somewhere outside daylight was going on at that moment. Hmm. And he was saying, he says, um... Oh, he was not thinking in moral terms at all, or else what is much the same thing. He was having his first deeply moral experience. He was choosing a side, the mm. normal. All that, as he called it, was what he chose. If the scientific point of view led away from all that, then be damned to the scientific point of view. The vehemence of his choice almost took his breath away. Yeah, that's so, great. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's something. You know, he was not thinking in moral terms at all. Mm-hmm. But he was having his first 
deeply moral experience. Yeah. And I think that I've had a similar experience, you know, where you, it's like you, uh, you, you come to this decision, you know, with, with everything, you know, this postmodernism is, is what I call it. And this, <laughs> I know. and this relativism where everybody's okay and everything is true. You, there, there comes a point, at least there was in my life where I'm like, you know what? Everything's not true. Mm. You know, you, you, you come, you know, you find this and you're like, truth exists. Whether or not I know specifically what that is, you know, I can agree that that's in question, but that it exists, I am positive about, <laughs> you know, Interesting. God is or God yeah. isn't. And that was yeah. actually at some point in my life, an important thing, you know, you say, okay, well, yeah, if I, if I go all the way down to the bedrock of, of, you know, uh, philosophy, the fact that truth exists is the one thing I can absolutely say is true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, 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 and in the world that we're in today, that's actually not, I don't know if that's a popular conclusion or not even anymore. No. Isn't you know? that funny too, to think how unpopular that idea is in some places? I mean, because Look at the same thing some people do in the name of finding their own truth. Mm, yeah. And um, actually, and that leads to one of my very favorite bits of this book that I've always put, I put in my quote journal when I first read it. Uh -huh. So there's a guy early on who's going to leave nice. His name is Hingist, I guess. Uh -huh. And um, he's talking to Mark and he says, well, go, go somewhere else and get a decent career. You're not going to do any good staying here. And oh, yeah. mm -hmm. I suppose there are two views about everything, said Mark. A, two views. There are a dozen views about everything until you know the answer. Then there's never more than one, but it's no affair of mine. Good night. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, all that stuff that everybody argues about from different degrees of rightness. Oh, it's like, no, when you know so what's good. going on, there's yeah. one point of view. That's right. Yeah, that's just awesome. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's really great. Yeah, there are a dozen views about everything until you know the answer. That's so, so very true, right? And then there's one. And uh, yeah, you can get mired in those dozen views. Yeah. So very good. Love it. Yeah, because it's, mm -hmm. it's the way they do it in this book, where they very gradually, from the very beginning, when Feverstone comes in, and it starts to very slightly here and there with a smile and a wink, and a, you're on the in crowd, and those people are dumb. Just twist mm. perceptions yeah. of who all the people are and where you want to be. And that's how he gets Mark to nice. And it turns out they really don't want Mark necessarily. They want um, Jane. Well, or mm. they want them together. Yeah, yeah. In case they're going to have that baby. But yeah, again, it's it's that, you know, Mark's group denying that one thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> the one reality. <laughs> <laughs> that lies, that in, lies below beneath the surface. The surface. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's great. I also really liked, there was this one point where they show Dimble, who's the husband of the married couple that is at St. Anne's. Mm -hmm. He works at the university where Mark works. And um, Jane knows the wife, but the husband knows Mark. Mm -hmm. And at one point, Mark is back at the school. I can't remember why. I guess because he came to say, hey, I wasn't quitting, by the way. <laughs> and um, That's right. he's, he's uh, talking to Dimble, and Dimble says, well, and he's always been really insecure about Dimble, Mark has, because he's insecure around everyone. He never gets affirmation for anything he thinks, essentially. And um, this is fantastic, said Mark. Even if I do happen to hold a job in the nice for the moment, you know me. Or this is fantastic, meaning this is nuts. Mm -hmm. um, I do not know you, said Dimble. I have no conception of your aims or motives. He seemed to Mark to be looking at him, not with anger or contempt, but with that degree of loathing which produces in those who feel it a kind of embarrassment, as if he were an obscenity which decent people are forced for very shame to pretend they have not noticed. And Mark, this was quite mistaken. In reality, his presence was acting on Dimble as a summons to rigid self-control. Dimble was simply trying very hard not to hate. 
not to despise, above all, not to enjoy hating and despising, and he had no idea of the fixed severity which this effort gave to his face. Mm. The whole of the rest of the conversation went on under this misunderstanding. Wow. (laughs) And I just thought, you Mm. know, I've had those moments where, um, and it hasn't even necessarily been, well, I've had to try not to hate people sometimes, but... um, I mean, I have a really clear memory of standing by the front door at one point and just, I mean, fighting myself so hard not to just snap nastily at somebody. Hmm. And thinking at that point, just going, oh, this is so hard. <laughs> and then kind of the back of my mind just going, yeah, yeah, that's why you're doing it. Hmm. It's hard. If it was easy, it wouldn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah, I've had that too. Yesterday, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Man. Yeah. 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 And it's hard to think of somebody as innocuous seeming as Mark inspiring hatred like mm. that or the uh, Dis- desire to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Extreme frustration. And that kind of glorying in it, which is the, the fighting to not enjoy it is the same thing that no one does at nice. They encourage it. Hmm. Feel superior to this person because you're in the in crowd. Yeah, yeah. Which is how Feverstone moves him along to even being there, you know. He he encourages these feelings. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, man, you know, again, this is just so surprising to me. (laughs) And I don't know why it was, but this whole trilogy has been... You know, surprise one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this is nothing like I expected. <laughs> um, but again, it's just so worthwhile. Um, and I really am going to read this again. Um, I know I say that sometimes <laughs> without ever what? getting to it. But this one, it's just like, you know, there's so much there that um, I know I haven't taken in. It's very rewarding, and I enjoyed reading those first two books, especially with Lent coming and going. Mm, yeah. You know, they mm-hmm. they took on added resonance during that time of year, and, well, this too, I guess yeah. I was reading up yeah. before Easter. And it, because they are just good adventure stories at the same time. Sure. Yeah. But... Yeah, but they're very, you're right, they're unexpected. They, yeah, they were. Based on the Narnia Chronicles, mm-hmm. based on his nonfiction or his other, you know, fictional writing like the screw tape letters. These show such imagination and depth that mm. you just don't see in another way. Yeah. To me. So has he written any other novels? Um, oh, you mentioned he wrote, The Great Divorce before we started to record. That's. Is, do you consider that a novel? Till They Have Faces, I think. Till They Have Faces, okay. I, I've heard of that, but I haven't read oh it. Oh, my gosh. Is that It's a, a retelling of Psyche and Cupid, okay. I believe. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about, you're right, I should have expected these three. I've read mm-hmm. that because my book club read it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got done, went to the book club and went, what happened? <laughs> Can someone explain this? I, I got some of it, but uh-huh. the ending, what mm-hmm. went on? Wow. Mm-hmm. And it's highly praised. It's really interesting to read. It, you definitely, if we read it sometime, which I'd be happy to do, you'd mm-hmm. have to read it twice for sure, okay. I think, or read a commentary with it. Got it. Mm-hmm. I would. Okay. But it's it's really good. And cool. I think it's one of the later things that he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Look. Okay, I got it. It says 1956. Oh, so it's not that much later. Yeah. When was he writing the Narnia Chronicles then? I think that was the first 1950? one was 1950, if I remember right. Okay. We, I'd looked it up. Uh, let's see. The right. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe mm-hmm. is the first one. And it says 1950. When was the last battle, though? So that would have been the okay. last one. Let's see. The last battle. Mm, Lewis. Since there are a number of last battles. Or is that not? There it is. 1956. Wow. There were seven of those. So he was just churning those things out. Yeah, he got them done pretty quick. Which makes sense. Uh And so then he wrote Till They Have Faces or Till We Have Faces, I think it is. Right. Okay. Interesting. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and I, I mentioned this to you uh, again before the uh, podcast, before we started to record, but I, when I was poking around, you know, looking for some information on that hideous strength, I, there was a comment somewhere where a person said, uh, Mm-hmm. Had asking the poster if he had read the partial novel, which is the fourth novel in the Space Trilogy, <laughs> the inaccurately named Space Trilogy. Right. And um, I hadn't heard of such a thing. Um, and I had asked you if you had heard of such a thing, and you said no, that you hadn't. Um, but we do know that um, there's a partial thing that uh, Tolkien published. Or it would have been Christopher Tolkien. Did he publish it or did he no, just write it? Maybe. he wrote it, but uh, Christopher Tolkien would have published it. And, yeah. Uh, and I can't was it published? It's a time, it was some it time was. travel. It, um, I actually looked it up and found it. I haven't read it. Um, I was going to grab it from the library, but it's called The Lost Road or something like that. Oh, okay. <clears throat> um, the Lost Road by Tolkien. So wh- what we're kind of talking about is uh these books partially came about because um tolkien and lewis talked about science fiction and how they would do it differently if they wrote science fiction Mm -hmm. so they both said well let's write some science fiction um and tolkien was going to write a time travel story and i think it was the lost road i believe you yeah and um yeah so in fact, I'm just looking it up here. It says that there's a book called The Lost Road and Other Writings by Tolkien. And uh, on the Wikipedia entry says, an introduction, the very first thing is an introduction to the following pieces detailing how Tolkien's correspondence with C.S. Lewis led to the writing of The Lost Road. Mm. And The Lost Road is a story written in late 36 that connects Tolkien's other tales to the 20th century. Wow. So, time travel. <sighs> Maybe I should look for it. Yeah. So well, it's a yeah, it's a book that came out in 1987. Um, Christopher Tolkien was the one who, mm-hmm. I guess you'd say, it was the editor. Yeah, found it and well, um, and so I'm looking on. I, I see here that it says there's a version of that hideous strength, specially abridged by C.S. Lewis, entitled "The Tortured Planet." I feel like maybe we missed mm. the boat we should have been reading the torture planet but uh-huh. it's fine oh no wait that's yeah that hideous strength yeah exactly however wow. and now i'm like oh especially especially abridged, abridged. I, I want that <laughs> one. Oh wait no maybe not anyway mm. um but under that it says the dark tower so there hmm. was an unfinished manuscript published posthumously in 77 by walter hooper who is it's, he is C.S. Lewis's Christopher Tolkien, basically. He's the oh. one who got left with permission to get everything out there, and he's done a great job of it. So uh-huh. um, it features Elwyn Ransom in a less central role as involved in an experiment that allows its participants to view on a special screen their own location in a parallel universe. Huh. So. Um, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Parallel universe. I know. Yeah, parallel universes are. Yeah, that's such an odd thing. You know, I, I can believe that there are other universes, but I don't know that there's another me out there. That goes against everything a Christian believes. That's what I th- believe. Yeah, it just yeah, seems if, odd. If we're uniquely created by God mm-hmm. to be who we are, yeah, I mean, at least to have the the essence of who we are uh-huh. that we then take into the world, then there can't be more versions of me. There can be. I don't know. Huh. That's interesting. It's a funny thing because I heard something the other day from someone scientific. So a podcast or something where they were saying that people now pretty much agree that there are parallel universes. Just no one's ever been able to prove it. But it's kind of accepted as a scientific fact. And I'm like, wait a minute. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I would like a little proof, please. Not just these thought ideas. Yeah. I mean, thought ideas, thought um, projects that right. people have set up for themselves. Yeah, and Star Trek episodes are not research. <laughs> we should need to note yeah. that. Yeah. Although so, Spock is amazing yeah. in any universe, I just want to say. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, anyway, you know, I'd, I'd be willing to believe 
that there are, you know, other universes that's still, you know, created by God and everything. It's still all the one thing, really, to me. Yeah. But yeah, I just, just don't, I just don't believe that every decision I make branches into another universe and there are timelines and other various yeah. things. In fact, I find those things pretty annoying in movies, too. <laughs> You yeah. know, it's like, you know, the Star Trek splintering into various things. That's like, oh, man, yeah. I, remember I don't like you that very about much. It. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't mind it as much, but it doesn't yeah. mean all the movies are going to be good either. So It doesn't. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just want it to be a cohesive whole thing. It, I, I'm no. just one of those people. I feel like that's okay. Yeah. You know. You bet. I think Tolkien would be on your side for yeah. sure. Right. And everything he wrote all wound around the same stuff. And I could see that actually kind of, you know, we all die. We ask God, so what's happening? He's like, oh, parallel universe. Here's what it really is. And we mm. never had the full, we had like 10% of the idea. Yeah. Because we just can't think that out of the box. <laughs> I mean, think how many how many theories there have been through the ages. The idea that um, rotten meat is makes flies come out mm, maggots were right. yeah well the flies laid their eggs in the meat or you know <laughs> that kind of thing it's like no there's no self-generation of life sorry that's right but, yeah you need the evidence <laughs> at that point that's right well thank you for the idea of reading these three books this has oh. been excellent these are these are going on in the pool room for sure <laughs> So they're on my go shelf. Yeah. You know, this is this 15 is, minutes sweep a shelf's yeah. worth of books into your bag. <laughs> right That's Lord right. Of the Rings. Yeah. These are permanent. Mm-hmm. So very good. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you liked them. I, they were good the second time through for sure. Yeah. Yep. And my second time through is coming. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah. yeah. That's, I totally believe it. <laughs> Oh, wait. Now I'm being a Lord Feverstone. Never <laughs> wait mind. Wait a minute. Good, good one, Scott. Are you secretly loathing me right now? <laughs> I'm fighting it really hard. No, I'm not if I'm Lord Feverstone. I'm enjoying it. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. But these oh, were terrific. Goodness. What great no, books. I'm yeah. glad. I yeah. yeah, even fighting my way through that hideous strength, it mm. was still worth it. It was know? definitely worth it. Yeah. No and there's question. a good audio version, so yeah, for anybody yeah. who's wanting to try it out or yeah, very finish good. it or whatever. Very yep. good. Yeah, I'm really curious about the tortured planet. What what the heck did he do there? I know. What did he take out? I'm curious about the dark tower. Hmm. Yep. Oh well. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Right. I say that too a lot and never do it. So <laughs> sounds good at the you time, but then I get busy. All right. Well, next up for us is a movie called The Dish. Yay! Love that movie. Yep. Let's go to Australia. I think it's in my pool room because it's, isn't it the same director as The Castle? (laughs) You know, I didn't know that. If it is, I'm going to be delighted. I think it is. I love it so much. Yes. (laughs) I love this movie. That's good. Yep. Yep. Rewatch The Castle, which is in the pool room as well. Well, that's where the I pool room it. came from. It's right over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah, it's where the pool room came from, for well, sure. We have the dish in our pool room. We, yeah. we watched it on big screen and then oh, nice. bought it. So. Wonderful. Yep. Good. So that's what we're going to talk about next. So. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.